you can grab your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 29. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are standing at the front here, and they're going to walk towards the back. You can slip your hand up in the air, and we'll make sure a Bible gets across to you. And uh, if, if you're visiting or you're new to church uh, and you don't own a Bible, we would just love to give you a copy of God's Word. So, so if you take a Bible here today, just take it home with you. And uh, we trust that it would be a blessing to you. And we're going to study it together. Uh, we're, we're diving into chapter 29 of Genesis. And uh, last week, we're, we're, we're moving through the book of Genesis, and we're going to start taking larger chunks as we go, including today. But last, last week and last chapter, we saw that Jacob, uh, one of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel, in fact, his name will be changed uh, to Israel This man had a divine encounter where God had conferred upon him the promises that were originally given to his grandfather, uh, Abraham, and to his father, Isaac. And now God has shown up to him and he has said, my promises are going to be bestowed upon you and they're going to now flow through you. And and we've been looking at these promises over and over again every week. They're so dominant. The theme is so dominant in the book of Genesis. And as, as you read your Bible, I hope you begin to see how dominant these themes are throughout the entirety of Scripture. In fact, the very last chapters of the Bible will essentially wrap up this theme of land, seed, and blessing in the most marvelous way. These themes, we looked at them last week, and I said you can kind of understand them as a place, a progeny, and presence. God wants to bring his people to a place that will ultimately find its great fulfillment and culmination in a new heavens and new earth. God wants to bless his people with progeny, and ultimately that progeny will be Jesus Christ who will come through this line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who will be the savior of the world, and then anybody who is attached to him by faith in him will become children of Abraham as well. And so God is ultimately leading us to this place, this new heavens and the new earth, where not only will the promised seed, Jesus Christ, be there, we will look at him and see his face, but all of God's people, all of God's offspring, by virtue of their faith in Jesus, Jesus will be there and will experience, listen, forevermore the presence of the almighty God and creator of the heavens and the earth. Isn't that awesome? That's what awaits for every person who places their faith in Jesus Christ, who turns from their sin, who lives unto his glory. And this man, Jacob, has had this this divine encounter with this God, and he's received these promises that point forward and backwards at the same time. And God had told him in the last chapter that, that God would be with him wherever he went. He would give to him everything he needed. God did not tell him to fix his life, to clean himself up, to resolve all of his problems in his own strength before he could come to God. Dealing with his sin was not the main focus of the last chapter. Instead, it was about a divine encounter that had the power, listen, to bring about a transformation, a true change in this man's life. But here what we find out 
And what we see is that while God takes him as he is, he will not leave him as he is. Where God did not require him to deal with his sin first in order to come to him, what we find out here is that after, God, after he has encountered God, God now wants to begin to change him and to deal with his sin. In many ways, you can kind of think of this, this chapter along the lines of Galatians chapter 6, where we are told, listen, that we will reap what we sow. If you reap righteousness, you will reap, or you sow righteousness, you will reap righteousness. But listen, if you sow sin, you will reap sin. In other words, what this chapter emphasizes is much of uh, what the, the, the scriptures continually teach us, including Numbers 32, 23, you can be sure your sins will find you out. That God actually does want to expose your sin in order to deal with your sin. This chapter is about the way the consequences of sin catch up to the sinner, which is important to understand because we may think Maybe you've been here at times in your life. We may think that we can get away with our sin. And for a time in our lives, it may actually appear to, that that's exactly what's happening. We've covered our sin. We've buried our sin. We've ignored our sin. And it seems like our life is fine, even though we've got this hidden sin buried in our life. Maybe it even seems like God is blessing us. And so we begin to think that our sin surely is not that big of a deal. But what we find out here is that sin doesn't really pay. In fact, what we see is that even though God can bless us in spite of our sin, trouble always follows our sin. In fact, as Paul will say in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is not life but death. We are never better off for having sinned against God than having obeyed him. I need to say that again. We are never better off for having sinned against God than having obeyed him. And yes, listen, God can turn our failures into great triumphs for his glory. And we see both of these realities here in this passage, that sin has a way of catching up with us, and yet God has a way of redeeming us even from the very consequences of sin. God can forgive sin, God can redeem sinners, and God in an amazing way can even use sin and sinners to bring about his perfect plans. So I want to frame this message around of the negative consequences of sin, but hear me out here. In each point, I want to end the point with the corresponding mercy offered by God. Our God confronts us in our sin. That's the warning that we're going to get from this passage over and over again. But, but listen, but God loves us too much to leave us in our sin, and that's mercy. And so God has made a way to deal with our sin. I want us to look at three warnings to heed in order to grow in godliness. And I want to use a familiar saying to walk through this text because I think it fits so well. I've used this saying before, um, and, and I don't know who to attribute it to. It seems like, as I've researched it, it's attributed to a whole a broad array of, of people, which is wrong. And so I just think that just means a lot of people have said it. So we'll leave it anonymous right now, and we'll just use it for our, a way to our way to map ourselves through this passage. Here's the first point. First warning, sin will take you farther than you intended to go. Sin will take you farther than you intended to go. Let's pick up and read verse 1 of chapter 29. It says this, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. 
As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered together, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Jacob is on a journey. We read that in verse 1, reminding us of the context reminding us of how he ended up on this journey in the first place. The text in the the Hebrew literally reads that he lifted up his feet. It's like there's a bit of spring in his step now. He's just encountered the God of the universe. He's just received the promises of God. And so there's some spring in his step as he continues on this journey. But we cannot forget how he ended up on this journey in the first place. Yes, he is heading to his mother's brother's family to find a wife, but but he was forced, remember, to flee for his life because of his own sin and because of the sin that was embedded in each one of his family members. His family, so dysfunctional, such a train wreck, and he was more than complicit. He was actively involved in deceiving his older brother and stealing his blessing and birthright. And so now he's reaping the consequences of his sin. He's had to flee. He's been left in the wilderness. He's surrounded by danger. He's got only a rock for a pillow. But he has had this incredible encounter with the almighty God. And as we read this chapter, Moses, who's the author of the book of Genesis, he actually wants us to read this alongside chapter 24. Some of you may have picked up on this as you're ready. You're like, oh, this sounds a little familiar. That, that is intentional. 
It's by divine design, and Moses is wanting us, to, as well as the Spirit of God, to pay attention to chapter 24. And, and here's why. He's wanting us to see that there are both parallels with that chapter and distinction or differences with that chapter. So if you were here when we studied chapter 24, um, you, you probably maybe have a little bit of understanding. If not, I'll just quickly summarize it for you. That chapter dealt with Jacob's father, Isaac, finding a bride. And I, I entitled that, that, that passage and that sermon, A Marriage Made in Heaven, because in that passage, what you find out is that this, this faithful servant, an unnamed servant, is sent out, and he's sent to find this bride for his master, Isaac. But if you remember, and just remember, let me just kind of map this out. Remember, he comes to a well, he meets the future bride of his master. Laban is introduced into the scenario. You've already seen the parallels, right? But remember in that passage, remember, remember how the servant went about his mission? Everything was driven by a fixation on God. He prayed. He sought the Lord. He tried to discern the will of God. He responded in worship. And what you need to see here is none of that is present. Not even a little bit. And so while there's parallels, here's what Moses wants you to see. There's distinction here that we need to pay attention to. And it's not telling us something good about Jacob. It's highlighting that there are still problems in the life of Jacob. He has had, yes, a divine encounter with God, but he is not yet the man of God that God wants to make him into. It's a really important point to maybe understand. Don't rush too quickly past that. I think so often we want to believe that, that transformation in the Christian life, in the spiritual life, happens almost like turning on a light switch. It happens so easily or so quickly. Our expectations are that it's going to happen overnight. But one of the things we find out, listen, is that you can actually have a real, genuine, divine encounter with God, but then fail to walk faithfully with that God. And what we're finding out here is that there is a process involved. Now, I look at Jacob, and in many ways, this passage, you want to know what it highlights? It highlights that he's a bit of a piece of work. He is, but, but it also highlights that he is a work in progress. And I hope that maybe you're here today, and you can resonate with that. There are times where I, I think we can look at all of our lives and say, well, we're still a bit of a piece of work, but you know what? Hopefully, by the grace of God, we're a work in progress. God is still, is still chipping away, making us into the people he wants to make us. But I want to emphasize that this doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. As we will see, I think that the reason Jacob fails to walk faithfully with God is because he hasn't yet, though he's encountered the Almighty God, he has yet to truly encounter his own sinfulness. There's a kind of awareness, but there's not yet, I don't think, a true brokenness and this passage is about bringing him face to face with his sin. He's still far too self-reliant. He's still far too self-sufficient. He's not really living a life of faith the way his father Abraham and Isaac had lived. He's still depending very much upon his own wisdom, his own strength. 
Now, it does seem here like there is an awareness in Jacob of the providence of God. So if you remember back to chapter 24, the servant in that chapter was well aware of how God was leading and directing, and he was paying attention to it. I don't think there's the same kind of awareness here with Jacob, but I do think I do think he's cluing into the fact that God is answering the promises that were made to him in chapter 28. I think there's a sense in which Jacob is is remembering that that, that the Lord stood at the top of the ladder. And the Lord promised that he would be with him. And the image of God standing atop the ladder was a reminder not just that, that God was sovereign over all the affairs of humanity, but that God was intimately and specifically involved in all the affairs of his own life. And so I think there are little indicators here that he's seeing, okay, okay, this, this God is going to do what he promised to do. But I think this, I think for sure, even if Jacob doesn't clue into these realities, we the readers and hearers, we're supposed to. We're supposed to see that God, listen, God is in control when people are faithfully following him, and God is in control even when they're not. And so you'll see things like chapter 2, where it says he looked up and he saw the field and notice this word, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. And then down in chapter, or verse seven, excuse me, again, we see the word behold. And you're gonna hear it again in verse 25, behold. We're meant to see that his success in chapter 29 is on account of God's promise in chapter 28. And I think what we're really meant to see is that This success is not because he deserves it, but because God has mercy on him and shows loving kindness toward him. It's highlighting, in other words, not the worthiness of the human recipients, but the faithfulness and loving kindness of the giver of every good and perfect gift. So here's Jacob. He finds himself at this well. Behold, it's a shock, but in one sense, you have to remember, he's heard the story before. He had to have heard the story of how his father and mother, you know, got married. He knows that wells are significant. Oh, my, my, my father's servant met my father's wife, my mother, right here at a well. And by the way, it is very likely, though it's not explicit, it's very likely this is the very same well. Here we are reminded that wells are a symbol of life and provision. The water that is necessary to survive, especially in dry and arid climates, but but survival is dependent upon the provision of water. So there is a clue here. We're being signaled that God is about to provide. There are three flocks of sheep And they're lying around the well along with their shepherds. And there's a large stone. Verse 2 makes it clear. It's a very large stone that is kind of plugging the the mouth of the well. And the reason they would do that is simple. Uh, One is to prevent pollution, things from getting in there that could contaminate the well. I think it's to prevent theft. And it's to protect people from falling in and, and dying. So here here we have this picture, and what we see is that none of the shepherds take any trouble to to go out of their way to greet him and to welcome him. Jacob is the active participant in every part of this engagement. Jacob began with this kind of careful courtesy, and he's asking them some questions, and you'll notice that he's confused. Jacob, remember, uh, is a shepherd himself. 
He's skilled in this area. And he's confused as to why they're just laying around. What are you guys doing? And I just want you to pay attention again to the providence of God as he's talking to them. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. The providence of God on full display. And I love this. He, he's, he's kind of, in a subtle way, I think, I think rebuking them. And, and he's still confused as to why they're not watering their sheep. He's like, he's like, guys, get to work. He's like, come on, get off your butts, get to work. And they come up with this answer. Maybe it's an excuse. Maybe there's a cultural component to the way they do things. Either way, Jacob doesn't care. And instead, you know what he does? He, he says, listen, there's a pretty girl coming. Get out of my way. I got business to take care of. And, and guys, I, I think we can uh, somewhat relate to this. Isn't it funny that uh, even in the ancient world thousands of years ago, uh, men still operate the same way today. Uh, they are trying to impress women with feats of strength. Right? They're trying to attract women by being impressive in some way, and that's what Jacob is doing here. I think that's pretty obvious. It, it, we've already kind of been clued into this because the, the stone covering the well, it's heavy. And in fact, it's probably likely that these guys are waiting for more people to come and help move, move it. You know, and Jacob's just like, <laughs> move out of the way, guys. You know, he's just like, get down there. Just feed it, adrenaline pump in, you know. And then he's like, oh, hey, Rachel, I didn't even see you there. <laughs> Which way to the gym? I'll never forget, I was, uh, when Sarah and I were dating, which is many, many moons ago now, um, I remember we used to invite her to come to my hockey games or sporting events, and she came with such joy and excitement. And you know, I'd be out there and I'd be thinking, you know, I'd, I'd be looking to make a play and maybe if I was lucky, score a goal. And I'll never, you know, I'd be, I'd be kind of glancing to the side, you know, just very casually looking to the side. It's like, hey, you see that? Like she wanted to give the wink and the guns. You know? <laughs> And, and I'll never forget, you know, every time looking over and, and she just wasn't watching at all. <laughs> Talking to a friend who was likewise supposed to be there being impressed by their soon-to-be husband. And I'll tell you this, just as a side note, you know, since we've been married, she's never come to a game again. And I... I, I and I tell you, I know the reason why. It's because I have already sufficiently impressed her and she can't handle anymore. It's too much. <laughs> but I, I digress, okay. You get the point, right? You get the point. I think, I think what we're supposed to see is that Jacob is trying to seize the opportunity, take control. Now remember, the servant in the previous chapter, chapter 24, guess what he did? He did not take matters into his own hand. He waited upon the Lord. And again, I think we're supposed to see there is a difference here in how Jacob is operating. He is still a work in progress. But he waters the flocks. And then he weeps with Rachel. He kisses her. This is not an intimate kiss. This is a familial kiss. I think there's genuine excitement. He's found, he's found his, his, uh, his family members. And this is going to be the start of God answering the prayers, the promises. He's welcomed by Laban. 
And listen, although Jacob weeps aloud because he has successfully completed at least this part of his journey, again, I want to highlight, do you remember the servant in chapter 24, how he responded when he saw God answer the prayers, when he saw the providence of God? Here's what he did. He worshiped the Lord. And Jacob, he does none of that. Although Jacob's journey began well with the restatement of the promises of God and the assurance of God's presence, Jacob still has a lot to learn about trusting in God and not in his own abilities. Sin, listen, sin is still taking him further than he intended to go. And I think we can relate to this. I think every one of us can relate to this reality that sin will take us further than we intended to go that we begin down a path that we maybe never even thought possible. We do things, we think things, we say things that we never thought we would. We hurt people. We even maybe lose or destroy relationships in our lives because of our own foolishness and sin. And then even knowing that, knowing the pain of all that, it still takes us so long to see the damage we've done and to turn from our sin. And we can continue to walk down the kind of path of compounding sin. Just, just understand that sin will always take you further than you intended to go. It's not content to leave you at this place of neutrality or just flirting on the edges with sin, okay? If you're flirting with sin today, if you're kind of dipping your toes in an area of sin that you're just kind of like, it's not that bad, I promise you, keep flirting with sin and pretty soon you'll be diving headlong into that sin. If you're flirting with sin today in any capacity, and I'm just going to let the Spirit of God work in your heart. If you, if you are kind of walking down that path thinking you're okay, listen, be sure your sins will find you out. God loves, he'll take you as you are with all of your sin, but he is not content to leave you as you are. And part of the way he does that, listen, is by pointing out your sin, by drawing it out from the darkness and bringing it into the light. And I want you to hear this. Listen, while sin will take you further than you intended to go, here's, here's the, the mercy piece of this. Listen, okay? Mercy will bring you closer than you ever dared dream. And this is, so, this is such a, an incredible gospel truth. See, God is choosing to bless Jacob here, not because of his sin, but in spite of his sin. Our sin, listen, can take us far from God. And this is just a, this is kind of sin 101 in the Bible. All sin produces a separation from us in God. And this reminds us, doesn't it, that, that before there was sin, remember, there was nearness and intimacy, proximity to God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. They enjoyed every bit of who God was and what God had given them. And the moment sin entered the picture, there is this breach in relationship. There is this separation. There is this massive chasm that no human being can get themselves across. And if you're a Christian here today, listen... If you're a Christian here today, you know this, though your sin doesn't separate you from God, 
what, what sin does in the Christian life is quenches the presence of God, quenches the spirit of God, does not allow you to enjoy the intimacy with God that God intends you to enjoy. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't forsake you. Listen, but you can't experience the joy of the Lord the way he wants you to. Our sin can take us far from God. All sin does. Listen, but mercy brings us near to God. How? How? Because God closes the chasm by sending his son, the greater son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promised offspring. Remember this whole passage, this whole passage, this whole chapter, listen, this whole, this whole book, Genesis, this whole, this whole Bible, this whole Bible. Listen, it's leading us to one person. The point of this book it is not, it's not, it's not morality, it's not self-help, it, it, it's not, you know, moralistic, therapeutic, you know, psychological deism. This is bringing you to Jesus Christ, God in flesh, who wants to radically change your life and allow you to enjoy the very presence of your God and creator. Every part of this book is pointing you to Jesus. And he's the answer for how we who are far off can be brought near. He's come from heaven to earth to rescue all of us and to bring us near by the blood of his cross. And and the, the way that happens is by repenting of sin and placing faith in what he's done. You'll notice verse 15, it kind of ends on this Almost ominous note, Laban. Remember Laban? It's, we're getting clued into the fact. Laban was obsessed with money in, the, in chapter 24. He, the, the allure of that, the attraction of that. And you can tell he's kind of up to no good. And he says, it's because you are my kinsman. Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages shall be. You're part of my family. Let's make a deal. And here... Jacob's about to learn what we must learn as well, that sin will cost you more than you intended to pay. It'll it'll take you farther than you intended to go, and it'll always cost you more than you intended to pay. And and Laban, again, he makes this, you know, he makes Jacob a a, a deal he can't refuse. And and in chapter 15 and following, just notice what it says. We read chapter 15. Look at verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. This is intended to strike an ominous note in the reader. Just listen to this language and think about the situation of Jacob and Esau, the two brothers. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter, Leah, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant, Zilpah, to his daughter, Leah, to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? 
Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not done, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. The, the introduction of money into the equation, it, it sounds this ominous note, the details of the two daughters, the, the reminder of the older and the younger and the cultural customs, all of this is supposed to trigger in your mind the events that took place in the life of Jacob and Esau, how he, the younger, stole his brother's birthright from him and the blessing from his father, how he himself did wrong. We're being clued into the fact that his past sin is about to catch up with him and cost him far more than he intended to pay. And that is an understatement here. We read about the older Leah and it says that her eyes are weak. You may have a little textual note there that says that that means they're, they're soft. It's very difficult to determine what this means. It's possible um, that, that maybe she had a problem with her eyes, but it's also possible many, many commentators think this means there's no sparkle or fire or glow, which was highly prized in the ancient Near East. Whatever it is, we're just supposed to see a contrast. He doesn't think that Rachel, or excuse me, Aaliyah is that attractive. His eyes are on Rachel. She is stunning and beautiful to him. And so the tension continues to build as we read that Jacob loved Rachel. And the seven years of wages, they felt like nothing to him. But then we find out that on the, the wedding night, you know, everything seems to be going according to plan. And he wakes up and he looks over beside him and it is not Rachel whom he loves. It is Leah and he has no clue how she got there. Maybe you're wondering, how did this happen? You have to remember, we're in an ancient context. There is a wedding taking place at night. They don't have the luxuries of walking into a hotel room and flicking on a light. There's a veil covering her face, almost guaranteed, and combine that with the fact that there are some adult beverages surely being served. He, he, he doesn't understand what's happened initially. But the irony is not lost, is it, on the reader, on us? Perhaps... At least at first, it's lost on Jacob, whose very name means trickster or deceiver. But did you notice the, the language he uses in verse 25? Why then have you deceived me? <laughs> the deceiver has been deceived. The trickster has been tricked. He's been given a taste of his own medicine. 
And it's the same Hebrew word that's used in noun form all the way back in chapter 2735 to describe what this man Jacob did to his very own father. He's been beaten at his own game. Like his blind father whom he took advantage of, now Jacob in his blindness has been taken advantage of too. Hollywood could not write a better script. And this is intended, you're like, what's going, what is going on here? Listen, I, I believe that this is intended to be the, the Nathan with David moment in the life of Jacob, okay? You know that moment in the life of David where he's living in sin? He's, you know, he's just, he's, he's, he's murdered, he's slept with Bathsheba, who's not his wife. He's murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and he's trying to cover up this pregnancy, and he's doing his best, and he's just wasting away. His life is in ruins, and God sends a prophet to tell him a story, and so that he can render judgment upon a man in the story, and he does so with such vengeance and vitriol, and then Nathan turns around to him and says, you're the man. You're that guy. And God is looking here at Jacob. He's looking at Jacob, yelling, yelling, how could you deceive me like this? And it's supposed to strike to the very core of, the, of his being. And he's supposed to hear loudly and clearly the word of God saying, Jacob, you are the man. It's you. It's you. And it's worse because you did it to your own father. And Laban, in verse 26, he, he speaks more than he knows. He, he surely doesn't know the situation, right? He's just come, you know, he's just run into Jacob. I don't think, I don't think uh, Jacob's spilling the beans on his own deception of his father. I don't think that's taking place. I think he's still bearing his sin. And again, I think this is why God is exposing the sin. This is not the price that he intended to pay. But it is the price, this is, I need to say this very clearly, this is the price that God wanted him to pay. You reap what you sow. And I'm not suggesting that this is somehow simply punitive. This is more than that. There is a punishment to this, maybe, you know, for sure, I would say. But, but listen, this is intended to be restorative and transformative. And this is the way, you know, when we reap what we sow with our sin, this is the way God wants us to view it, not as God punishing us. I think we often do that. We're like, man, my life's a mess. Surely it's because of my sin. And we get, you know, we just live in the shame of our sin. But I want you to hear what the author of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, it'll be on the screen there for you. It says this. It says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. And, and later on in chapter 12, it actually says that, that we're disciplined. It, it feels painful in the moment, right? All discipline does, but it has a, a purpose. And the purpose is actually our sanctification. It's our holiness. It's to grow us and to transform us and change us. It's for our good that we may share in his holiness. That's what the word of God teaches. In Psalm 94, verses 12 through 15, listen to what the psalmist says. Very similar. Blessed, blessed. Can you hear this? Blessed, blessed is the man whom you discipline. Tell that to your kids. Make them memorize this verse, okay? Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. To give, look, why? Look, look at the result. To give him rest from his days of trouble. 
Your sin just leads to trouble. It leads to pain. It leads to heartache and brokenness. We know this. We know this. Not just because the word of God tells us so. Because our own lives preach this to us. Until a pit is dug for the wicked, for the Lord will not forsake his people. I love that. Here's the mercy. He will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. You see, he's looking to make us more righteous, more godly. And if you, listen, if you are experiencing the chastising, the disciplining hand of God in your life, you need to see this. You you need to stop asking, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? And start asking the much better question, God, what are you trying to do in me? That question will change everything. What are you trying to do in me, God? We so quickly want to see our circumstances removed without ever asking the question, God, what are you trying to do in me? What are you trying to root out of me? Jacob is being disciplined in this profound way. He's experiencing the consequences of his sin by having the same sin committed against him that he's committed against his own family. And I just, like, sometimes we don't deal with sin. We commit until we experience the same sin committed against us. And maybe, maybe if I can make an analogy here, maybe, do you have a Laban in your life? (laughs) You know, like someone who is just, you just feel wronged by them. You feel sinned against by them. You feel hurt by them. You feel deceived by them, mistreated by them. Maybe, maybe it's a, a coworker or a boss, or maybe it's a neighbor, or maybe it's somebody in your own home. Maybe you're sitting beside them and you're like, you're my Laban. No? Okay, good. I knew it. Maybe, listen, maybe, maybe... Spouses, listen, maybe the sins you're so quick to point out in your spouse is God's way of saying the thing that irritates you and you feel has wronged you is the very thing you're guilty of yourself. And isn't it, isn't it funny how the sins that seem to bother us most are the ones that we're very, which quite comfortable having exist and live in our own lives? Maybe you've got a bunch of little Labans running around. <laughs> and these people are irritating me. Blessing from the Lord. Okay. Maybe, maybe, listen, maybe, maybe the apple hasn't fallen very far from the tree. And maybe the thing that, that's driving you crazy about your, your children today, none of you, I'm people, people who are clearly unbelievers, only, they only struggle with this. But you, the beloved of the Lord, the righteous, never, never would you look at your children, right, and think, really, God? <laughs> really, again? Maybe the very thing that you're frustrated with in your kids, it's, it's like God's just holding up a mirror and saying, don't you get it? I'm trying to show you you. I'm trying to get you to deal with you. So yeah, deal with your kids, have the t- tough conversations, but, but don't miss the opportunity to look at your own heart and your own life and recognize the very sins that are being committed against you you are committing, maybe as well. There's a process here. You're thinking, like, why, why did Jacob have to work so hard for Rachel? Like, seven more years? Like, when you hear that, like, the first seven years was easy. I promise you this. The second, the second seven years, man, that is not easy. 
He's working for a father-in-law who cheated him. I want you to see this too. It's not like Rachel and Leah were hands-off in this, okay? They had to go along with this process at some point. Why did Jacob have to work so hard for Rachel? Here's why. Because God had some hard work to do in Jacob. Jacob needed some sanding down, some smoothing out. He needed some trimming. He needed a compassionate spirit. He needed to experience some pain. He needed to learn humility. He needed some added dimension to his character. He needed to grow in faith. He needed to stop trusting in himself. And God was willing, out of love for him, to do whatever was necessary to root out the sin and make him more like his heavenly father. Character is not developed in a momentary encounter with God, but in a lifetime of engaging with the process of God. That process is called sanctification. Don't expect godliness to happen overnight and without pain. The rooting out of sin is often a long and arduous process. Sin will cost you more than you intended to pay. Sometimes the consequences are great. Make no mistake about it. In an earthly sense, the consequences for our sin can be great. We reap what we sow. But if we have eyes to see... The exposing of our sin is an act of God's love and mercy. We must always remember, listen, here's the mercy, here's the mercy. Mercy does not give to us the payment our sins deserve. Whenever you face consequences for your sin, listen, you have to remember, I reap what I sow. There are consequences to choosing sin. Choose the sin, choose the suffer. You have to remember that God disciplines every child whom he loves and he will use your sin to do it, to get your attention and to sanctify you. But you, always, you can always remember this. You are never getting what you actually deserve. Isn't that awesome? Never. So how is this possible? Well, first of all, if you're in Christ, listen to this. Jesus takes our debt of sin. He dies our death. And he makes the payment in full. And if you're an unbeliever here today, if you're, and you're not a Christian today, I just, we just want you to know so desperately, I, I so desperately want you to know that the wages of sin is death. Your sin will mean, your, the consequences for your sin, there are earthly consequences, but there's something greater that you need to process. The wages of sin is death. There are eternal consequences for choosing sin over choosing the Savior. But God says to you today, listen, you don't have to get the consequences for your sin. You don't have to receive hell and the wrath of God and the just judgment that you deserve. Instead, Jesus can take your place. You can repent of your sin and believe in him. And instead, you can receive today the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You can today be assured that you will not only not get what you deserve, you will get what you do not deserve which is a relationship with God and all the blessings that he wants to unleash upon you in Christ Jesus. Last warning to heed in order to grow in godliness. A sin will take you farther than you intended to go. It will cost you more than you intended to pay. And sin will keep you longer than you intended to stay. And we've seen that already. The time is being added on. It's not just the financial burden. It's the longevity of this. But notice what happens here. And we're going to read the entire section. I'll just make a couple comments as we work through it. And then I want to make some application as we land the plane here. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. 
And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. We're beginning to see here the 12 tribes uh, being birthed. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. I just want you to know this, okay? Here's the unloved Leah, the, the hated one, which simply means she's not the chosen one. She's not the loved one in comparison with Rachel. I want you to hear, every time she names a child, at least the first few, she is looking back to her husband to see if he's going to pay attention to her. Look at this. Reuben. Why? Look at the na- what his name means. Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. For now my husband will love me. Maybe, look at the Lord has looked upon me. Maybe my husband will look upon me. She conceived again and bore a son and, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son. And she called his name Simeon. Maybe now my husband will love me, not hate me. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Literally, the, the name there means attached. And, and she's saying, listen, maybe now, look at, look at how the Lord has blessed me. Maybe you can be attached to me too. Maybe we can enjoy a fruitful relationship and marriage. Maybe I can know you, know the love of you, my husband. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. There's almost a resignation here. Notice, there's no attachment here to her husband now. It's almost like she's thrown the towel in. Okay, Lord, I get it, I get it, I get it. You will be enough for me. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Just look at how the sin is still here. It's, it's, it's lasting longer than I think Jacob could have ever possibly anticipated. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, I, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Husbands, I, I, I just urge you not to say that to your wife ever. And then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Isn't this so reminiscent of Sarah and Hagar? Again, sin, sin. This isn't good. None of this is good. Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. They're rival wives. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Again, so wrong. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah, Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she, shall, she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field. These are not the ones that you pull out of the ground and they scream at you. If you know, you know. And these are like little apples, sweet apples, and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? 
Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. I mean, they're literally bartering, bartering for the rights to their husband. Can I, this is not the way marriage is supposed to work, okay? This is, this is all so bad. None of this is being condoned. None of this is being praised. But I want you to see this. Listen, God is working in spite of the sin. And so, when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Too much to get into here. For the sake of time, Alan Ross says this, embedded in this agonizing story of people, people's emptiness and self-inflicted pain is God's gracious gift of hope. These people, he says, have half-lives blocked by sorrow, hostility, and competition. Leah has children, but not the love of her husband. Rachel has the love of her husband, but no children. And the growth of Jacob's family is driven by the conflict between Leah and Rachel, these rival sisters. This is going to be forbidden in Leviticus 18.18 to marry sisters. You're like, yeah, I could have told you that. And it makes them rival wives. You just, the sin, the sting of sin soaked in this family. It's just lasting so long, longer than they ever imagined it would stay around. But but it's, it's infesting all of these relationships. Can I suggest husbands as an application? Men, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And admittedly, that is much easier when you only have one wife to love. But can I urge you, men, listen, how painful, how awful, how sinful when we fail to love our wives with the kind of selfless, sacrificial, and servant-hearted love that makes her feel secure, valued, and accepted. Wives, women, can can I speak to you? Can I urge you not to find your value or your identity in your husband and your husband's love? Young women who are not yet married, can I urge you not, not to find acceptance from men by giving to them what you, what, they, what you think they want and what they sometimes do want from you. Do not throw yourself, do not offer yourself, do not give yourself to anyone who is not your husband for the sake of earning their approval and acceptance. Do not find value in what the, the men of this world may think of you. Find value in what God thinks of you. You are loved by him, you are accepted by him, you are cherished by him. Husbands, when we love our wives properly, we are allowing them to feel and to know and experience the very love that Christ has for them and for his church. 
I just want to end on this note. Rachel, you'll notice the barrenness of Rachel. She tries everything in her own power, you know, including the, the whole mandrake scheme to, to give birth to a child, and nothing works. And we know why. We know why she's barren, because it's reminding us of the effects of the fall. Sin, sin has brought death. The barren womb equals death. But, but listen, as God so often does, and he's already done in their family history, he will take what is dead, and he miraculously will bring forth life. And ironically, at the very end, listen, verse 22, God remembers her. And she gives birth, listen, in spite of her sin, her self-sufficiency, and her scheming, she gives birth to a child who she names Joseph. And when we hear that name, listen, we ought to think of many things, many things. We're going to be looking at the life of Joseph, so much time given to him in the book of Genesis, and we ought to think of, listen, amongst other things, the family drama that's going to continue to last, right? This favorite son of Rachel will be despised by his brothers from other mothers, But what ought to come to mind in the mess of this painful, sinful situation are the words that he would speak to his brothers at the very end of this magnificent book. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Sin will keep you longer than you intended to stay, but mercy, listen, here's here's the kicker. Mercy will keep you longer than you could possibly fathom. Your sins, they do not have to leave you eternally separated from God. Instead, the mercy of Jesus Christ, the everlasting God who has paid the infinite price for your sin by giving his own life for yours and offers you eternal life, it can never be lost, forfeited, or taken away. The warnings in this passage are clear, but so, listen, so is the hope that is found in Jesus. If I could summarize this passage in a sentence, it would be this. Your sins may be many, but his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Father, we love you. You are so merciful. You are so kind. And Lord, we see in this dysfunctional family and in the sin that is embedded in each of their hearts and relationships, we see, Lord, in many ways a picture of ourselves who are lost and hopeless, far off from you, apart from your mercy and your grace that is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. All of this passage is pointing us, Lord, through through the 12 tribes of Israel that will come from this bizarre situation. It will be funneled down to the tribe of Judah. It will lead us to a King David, this messianic figure who points us ultimately to Jesus Christ, the promised offspring who would be the savior of the world. It is he who would give his life for ours, pay for our sin in full, so that we, your people, might stand and declare with hearts full of joy that though our sins may be many, we know, we know in Christ Jesus that your mercy is more. So God, would you hear our praise now? We want to lift our voices and declare, praise the Lord, for you are worthy of it all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing to him.